Greetings to all you folks out there in the deviant sphere. Thanks for tuning in for another episode of Dark and Devious. As Chris said, uh, thanks for tuning in to another episode. Glad you're here. Always a pleasure to have you to be at your ear. <laughs> yes, inside your ear holes. <laughs> like, we love it there. Um, glad you're keeping it clean. <laughs> well, um, as Chris and I were just chatting uh, before recording, there's not a whole lot really to share this week. It's been a Really quiet week for both of us. Mm-hmm. Are you feeling better, Chris? I am. I'm feeling much, much better. I, I've almost completely kicked this cold. I'm confident that especially if I rest for just like another day, I will be able to be at 100% again. So I already noticed my like my my voice has come back a lot stronger. So you're not so Lindsay Lohan. Yes. No, it never got <laughs> to that point. So I wish, I mean, I, I don't want you to be, sick, right? but, but I wish that I could hear that. Well, I guarantee you the next time that it happens, I, I will call you. <laughs> well, some listeners may have heard your voice for the first time yes. as being a little congested <laughs> and those would be our new listeners in sudan yeah how freaking cool is that like now we we know it's officially not a fluke that we have african listeners because this is now the second african country third third yeah. oh that's right because didn't we have um we have ghana and south africa oh and uganda did we have uganda no oh my gosh no we did not <laughs> but this, um, we definitely, it was Kenya. Kenya, 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 yes. So that's so, exciting. So yeah, thank you, Africa, for tuning in. I do like it though, because uh, within Anchor, you can look at, you know, the countries, and then within the countries, you can, you can look at like what cities or provinces. Mm-hmm. But then, if you keep digging, it'll say like one hundred percent of our listeners are on Earth. And, oh yeah. And then, <laughs> yeah and then it is like really cheeky it lists all the planets oh funny um and um i mean clearly we have zero but like that'd be so cool if there Wouldn't was that... an astronaut yeah from any country up there <laughs> and they just happen to be listening from mars or something i know that would be amazing <laughs> You know, we've, we've, oh, isn't this episode like 35? It is. That's a nice little landmark. Uh, so they would have, they could go through our whole uh, backlog of material and that would make the journey a lot more interesting. It sure would. Yeah. I wonder how long it would take for this to get there. Because isn't, oh, like isn't there still like a delay? Beaming out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess if any of our listeners are scientists of any, any sort, and we would be able to tell how long it takes for a broadcast signal to get from Earth to another planet, I guess. 
Yeah, any astrophysics right. majors out there. Yeah. I do have a friend credit. that um, works for NASA. That's that's cool. Yeah, she got her astronomy smart person major. I don't know what it's actually <laughs> called. Um, but yeah, so yeah. Like like an astrophysics degree? Or Maybe. Or it's in that realm. Okay. That's um, pretty cool. Yeah. She's on a team that is uh, with the Mars robot. No way. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. I haven't spoken to her in years. Like, Coralie, like, if for some reason you are listening, <laughs> um, I would love to reconnect with you and also pick your brains about space stuff. Right? <laughs> that would be so cool. Oh, man. Uh, so, yeah. So, we're, again, growing every week mm-hmm. across the globe. Yes. We are globe trotters. Yeah. <laughs> But um, in true crime-related news, uh, it's a very, very maybe. Right. But they think they might have identified the Zodiac Killer. Yeah, I love that there, it's like a whole team of, of investigators who were basically, this was kind of their pet project, wasn't yeah. it? Where, yeah. And I think a lot of the people on the team were retired investigators of some sort or like um like veteran police officers and stuff like that that uh, were looking into this case and i think other cases as well but uh yeah i it's funny i remember logging onto facebook the other day and what some one of my friends the first post that i saw was oh the zodiac killer would be someone named gary or something like i i think that because they haven't re- officially released the name. Yeah, so the person... So here, um, it's the Case Breakers. Which, That's it, yeah, the, that team. It's a team of 40 former law enforcement investigators where this was like, they're retired, but they're like using their time to dig up cold cases. Yeah, which is super cool. I mean, you never know if uh, another set of eyes can just see something that everybody else missed. So. Mm-hmm. Especially trained professionals like this. Right. And the case breakers say that they named a man um, that they suspect was a Zodiac killer. They have not released the name, um, but they believe that this person passed away in 2018. Which is frustrating, but it is. it would be nice to have an answer yes and the san francisco police department said that we are unable to speak to potential suspects as this is still an open investigation now do they say that because of that or is it literally we can't speak to potential uh suspects because they're dead that i mean it could be both both. (laughs) also you don't want to name someone zodiac killer when they still have family living that's true i mean Man, also, won't that be something if it comes out and then it's like, oh, turns out my cousin or my uncle or like family member was the Zodiac Killer. That would be quite an infamous uh, thing to add to the family tree. Yeah, I mean, it's like it's like when BTK's family found out like. 40 years later that oh he was gosh. the beat or like 30 but still um which is just insane they were living with the btk killer yeah. all along 
it just blows my mind. Yeah. So yeah, um, if they release any more information on the Zodiac Killer potential ID, I'm sure you all may know before we may even know, but <laughs> we'll talk about yeah, it. Yeah, it's, it's fun to discuss. Uh, that would be super cool, especially because I remember it wasn't even, was that even within like the last year or so that amateur code breakers finally uh, broke the the cipher on one of the, the encrypted letters that he sent? Yes, that was uh, just this past year and it like due to COVID, people had right? a lot of time yeah, on their hands. Which is like, wow, amazing that that actually worked to people's favor in this case Mm -hmm. yeah it was just some just a husband and wife that just they were really really good at like solving puzzles and they're like escape room like fanatics (laughs) and it's like they always play the puzzle on npr (laughs) (laughs) um so yeah it's just an ongoing investigation to this decades-old cold case yeah, because those date back from the 60s. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a couple weeks ago, one of our cases was from the 60s. And, and there's really not anybody left from that. Like, all of the kind of figures involved with the the murder were, are gone now. Uh-huh. And it's, it's, it's getting to be that point where, like, if you want any hope of actually prosecuting a perpetrator from that time period, it's getting pretty slim yep but i mean it's it's never too late i mean mm-hmm. uh, and just to have answers and closure is huge yes like, like the golden state killer yeah which is caught just like two years ago mm-hmm. maybe even a year and you know he was just this old man right and, and it's like it doesn't matter how old he is now be like you're gonna pay for you're gonna get you, yeah yes i mean i wish it was 30 years ago yeah but, but yeah so wild and then the other thing that is uh i just want to touch on now we have not really spoken about the gabby petito case Mm -hmm. um it's just ongoing there's there's no answers there's no sense of like i theorize this i theorize that unless we're gonna do a whole separate thing where that was the focus (laughs) and that would be our patreon which we have not set up yet yes but it might be soon yes we got a lot of things. We got a lot of balls in the air. Yeah, right we now. do. Yeah. Um, well, I saw that it's going viral on TikTok because someone flew a drone over Gabby Petito's former fiance's parents' home. Mm-hmm. And his mother was out working in the garden. And they zoomed in, and she's like shuffling around, like at the edge of the garden bed. And then after she moves her hand away, it's very blurry, but it looks like another hand kind of comes from, like, almost underneath. What? And, like, pulls something back. Oh, hell no. I know. Oh, hell no. So it's it's very, like, completely unofficial. Like, police aren't, to my knowledge, police aren't investigating this. But there's, like, speculating, like... Is her ex fiance like living in some sort of like little underground hideout under oh their garden? God, that's crazy. And, <laughs> and like I said, it's very, very blurry footage, but you can see that like after her hand moves away, there is another 
something that doesn't match the same Another color as the thing. soil, just like kind of like pop up and then go back. Oh my gosh. And unless it's like some kind of weird little groundhog or something. I mean, it could honestly just be like a big leaf that just happened to like the wind blew it yeah. the other way. Mm. But but I'm... I uh, this is getting to be like supernatural. <laughs> <laughs> right. Or that he's undead or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, it wasn't that long ago. A lot of people were prepping and people for, for were the building bunkers. <laughs> the zombie apocalypse. Maybe they have a bunker. Yeah, that would be interesting if that's, yeah. But check, anyway. Check that's... the records. Hmm. Yeah, that's... I could see this coming together. I, I, uh, I just started watching the show Supernatural for the first time from the beginning, which I'm loving it, uh, which is crazy. I was looking it up that it's, like it just finished its 15th season and that's like it uh which is an incredible run for a show and it's like one of it's one of the longest running shows like actual like dramas it's up there with like law and order svu mm-hmm. and like the simpsons and, and family guy like all of the which so as far as like like uh live action shows there are very few that have lasted that sure. long yeah um oh and ncis was another one that you know one of those ones where they could just kind of keep going and going mm-hmm. going but um yeah it makes me think of something that is straight out of that show yeah. I, I could totally see it that it would know. fit turns sure. out that he's like some demon that needs to like have a sacrifice and that's and this time he got caught and now he's like buried in the garden but still alive <laughs> well um we'll see what we'll that theory see. yeah goes. we'll see if that's the you know that is almost as plausible as almost any other one any other theory it seems <laughs> But your theory actually ties nicely in to my topic for this week. I love how that happened uh, because I did not know ahead of time. So no. this is totally by uh, uh, by design, the great, the grand design, not by not engineered by us. No, 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 no. Meant um, to be. So are you ready? I'm obviously I am. I guess we're already ready to talk about it, Chris. Let me ask you something. Anything. Anything? <laughs> well, on, on recording? <laughs> I mean, is is this going to be something... Well, I do the editing, so I mean, I guess if I don't like it, I can always edit it out. <laughs> and I can always unedit. <laughs> we both have access to this Oh, shoot. All right. Okay. Uh, ask me almost anything. Okay. okay. When you think of a vampire, what do you think of? Ooh, okay. I think of the 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 big like cape and like pointy teeth and like the the big like medallion type thing, like very classic vampire. Are you surprised that I didn't give like a twilight description of a vampire? No, I'm happy that you didn't <laughs> give a twilight. <laughs> Description. I've never seen any Twilight. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. You're not missing. I know it. all about it. <laughs> um, well, you gave pretty much the very stereotypical view of a Western 
vampire, mm-hmm. which most people, when they think of Western uh, vampires, you know, their mind goes straight to Dracula. Yes. Um, and that is what I'm going to be talking to you about today, is the birth and creation of the Western world's version of the vampire and how it has evolved over time. Oh, heck yes. Oh my gosh, this is great. A little uh, history of the vampire. I am so ready for this. Okay. So the history of vampires are long and dark. Most people immediately dismiss vampires as a complete work of fiction. But how is it then that tales of vampirism have existed on multiple continents over the course of time as we know it? Where did the concept of vampires come from? Now, before we get into the Western version of vampire, I just thought I would like to talk to you about a few different variations of ancient vampires from around the world. I love this because, yeah, when I think of vampires, I think of the very classic Transylvania, like Eastern Europe, idea of what a vampire is but exactly i'm sure that there's lots of different uh incarnations and different cultures though Uh uh-huh and that's i mean that's just because that's we grew up in the western world Mm -hmm. we're influenced by bram stoker yes but we're influenced by buffy (laughs) yes oh my god yes Um, buffy but you know people in different cultures all around the world have their own tales So throughout the ancient world, there were many vampire-like beings. From the Far East to ancient Europe, the vampires were prolific. They may go by different names, and their characteristics may vary, but the idea of a human-like creature that feeds off of others remains constant. In ancient Greek mythology, Lamia, the queen of Libya, was said to be a beautiful woman, but a cannibal with a taste for the blood and flesh of children. According to myth, Lamia had an affair with Zeus, and his jealous wife, Hera, took revenge upon Lamia by slaying her children. Dang, I I love the sort of um, Real Housewives level of drama that there (laughs) were in, like, the gods and goddesses at this time period. Like, there is some wonderful pettiness between all of them. Greek mythology is just total housewives. Yes. (laughs) So in a fit of rage, Lamia began devouring children, for if she were to be tortured by losing her child, then so should all mothers across the land. Ooh, that, that, that's some real pettiness. Be like, if I can't have it, no one can. As a result of her horrific appetite, she was given a grossly deformed face to warn children of her evil. But Zeus took pity on her and gave her the gift with the ability to pluck out her own eyes so that she would not have to see her own reflection. (laughs) Wow, what a great consolation Uh prize. Yeah. Now heading over to Africa, the Iwi tribes, it's E-W-E, it's either Iwi or U. Or U. But I don't think it's U like a lamb. Yeah. So I'm going to say Iwi. Okay. If anyone else knows, please. Yes, anybody else has heard otherwise... We'll have a correction corner for that. So the Iwi tribes people dreaded the Adzi, which appeared as a firefly-like insect until it was caught, and then it became humanoid. 
The Adzi also could take possession of people's spirits and inhabit their bodies. Usually women were accused of being Adzi, especially by feuding family members. An Adzi would spread disease and familial conflict while feeding off the children of the family. It caused great panic and paranoia in the villages where it was believed to have um, struck. For the Adzi was invulnerable and could not be defeated by any means. In this regard, it's the only true immortal vampire, since it cannot be killed. Interesting. I want, yeah, you, you think everything has got to have a vulnerability, but apparently that one does not. It also makes you wonder if that one is maybe connected to like an illness, because it sounds very much like... It hits they, a village. Right? Like, are they talking about malaria or like yellow fever or something right. like that? Because I could see it being like... Because malaria is transmitted through mosquitoes. So that really works perfectly. Like little and blood it's a suckers. firefly form. Yeah. So it's probably, maybe it's, there's some roots in reality there. Yeah. I like how your brain works because you're going to hear all about that later. Oh, cool. In Germany, so this kind of ties into the Western world vampires, oh. but this is separate from what we think of. Oh, a unique twist. Mm-hmm. Uh, ancient peasants took great efforts not to cross the path of the Blutsauger, which literally translates to bloodsucker. Okay, I was going to say, is this a cognate? <laughs> Sounds very similar. Uh-huh. In Russia, the same creature was called the Opior form, we deri- from which we derive vampire, or in the modern vampire. The word dates all the way back to ancient Slavic beliefs in the Opior. In what is now Romania, people were scared of the Strigoi, dead bodies that returned from the grave with a thirst of blood and the ability to shapeshift. There were many theories about what caused a person to become a Strigoi, and they ranged from being unmarried at the time of death to being born under the wrong astrological sign. Wow, that like, wow, two things that are really not in your control. Exactly. Often, Strigoi would attempt to reunite with its living loved ones and family members. Those that died virgins would become Strigoi and attempt to rape the object of their desire. Which What? That is so weird. Uh-huh. Like, just because you didn't get laid in life you're means right? that you come back and you're all horned up. <laughs> <laughs> Generally, Strigoi was only able to roam during the night hours and could be repelled by sunlight or even just candlelight. Hmm. Okay. That seems pretty easy to... Uh-huh. Just got... You gotta have a candle. Yeah. Further to the east, the vampires existed long before becoming the subject of nightmares and superstitions in Europe. However, the vampires of Asia did more than just suck blood and eat children. In India, the churl was a woman who died during childbirth and feeds off blood and stalks young men. She is sometimes described as having a dark complexion with sagging breast and gnarled black hair. Yet in other descriptions, she's a beautiful woman that resembles any traditional Hindi goddess. Also in India, there is the Vitala, wicked spirits that linger in cemeteries and take possession of the dead. Like many other vampires, the Vetala take particular pleasure in causing fear amongst the living 
by causing miscarriages and murdering children. Oh, they were particularly devious little yes. bastards. While the Vetala inhabit their corpse host, the corpse does not decay and the Vetala can remain inside of it until it either voluntarily leaves or is exercised by performing the proper funeral rites for the corpse. I just imagine like that it, it's like, oh, as long as you're not using this body, I guess I'll just step right in. <laughs> yeah, it's like, might as well not let a good thing go to it, waste, Yeah, right? like this a perfectly good body. It's only just a little dead. Just a little. Just a little dead. In China, it's the Xiangqi that mostly re- resembles vampires. The Xiangqi is a reanimated corpse that feed off the chi, or life force, of other creatures. The skin is typically gray and rotting, and they are usually depicted as having large black tongues and hollowed out eyes. So honestly, just think of um, the Sarah Michelle Gellar movie with the little boy in the house. Google it as I tell you. (laughs) But you're sure it's Sarah Michelle Gellar? Yes. It was believed that someone could become a Xiangqi if they died in a dishonorable death or if one died while traveling and could not be given the proper funeral rites. Xiangqi could only be laid to rest if they were buried in the dirt of their hometown and blessed by a Chinese priest. During this process, the priest would transport the weakened Xiangqi on a bamboo cart with bells attached to warn off any curious peasants that might come too close. <laughs> they like, yeah, listen for the bells. If you hear it, uh, please run as fast as you can away. Okay, so we checked it out uh, to reiterate. Uh, it is The Grudge is the movie we were, we were thinking of with Sarah Michelle Gellar yes. that has the, the what you think of the, as the Xiangqi... Yeah, the so look. yeah, so it's not necessary. It's not a movie that's based on the Xiangqi, mm-hmm. but it's like there's some I, similarities in the the way the design. spirits look. Yeah, yeah. So that's China, and in nearby Japan, the Nukikubi appear to be normal people during the daylight hours, but they are anything but. At night, they reveal their true form as they can remove their heads which can fly on their own as they hunt down humans to consume. That is so, such a funny thought of, like, the sight of this, where it's just, like, a detachable head, and then just, like, a head, like, flying around. Uh-huh. But that makes me think of, uh, I don't, it's kind of uh, considered, like, a cult classic movie, uh, but there's a Japanese film called House, that it and there is a a scene in there where like there is like and it's it's cool because like this this movie was made in the seventies and it had a lot of really cool new technology like techniques in it uh-huh. um, and it's very much like a ghost like a haunted house kind of story and they're one of the it's like this this like schoolgirl is like going on a a trip to see. Uh, I think it was her aunt and she hadn't seen her aunt in a long time. And so her friends came along for this journey, 
But then, like, her aunt's house is haunted. And it's, and, like, one, yeah, there's, like, a disembodied head moment in there that's really impressive for that time period. And it's also, like, a little funny, too. Well, maybe it was a Nuki Kubi. Yeah, I, <laughs> it's uh, certainly a, a possible reference. So as the Nuki Kubi flies its head around, they shriek as they stalk their victims, which instills the victim with terror because the Nuki Kubi also feeds off of fear. Oh, perfect. That's like a that's like a buffet special for them. Mm-hmm. The Nuki Kubi's headless bodies are completely immobile without their heads, and it is believed that it cannot if if a Nuki Kubi cannot locate its body before sunrise, then it is destroyed by daylight. Oh, I really, I love those kind of loophole situations like that, where it's like, it, I like to think if in a Scooby-Doo type situation that like, that's how I figured out, figure out how to, all you have to do is just avoid getting caught by the head until daylight. <laughs> right. So however interesting all those ancient vampires may be, there is one much, much older than all of them and thought to be the original vampire and the start of the vampire race. And this vampire was the birth of how the Western world views vampires today. Neat. Um, it's interesting that there are so many similar legends kind of across the world and it makes you wonder where does that come from if that is just something that we all fear it's like a primal human thing that everybody fears and so every culture just kind of comes up with its own or is it there are some real spooky events that happened and that there's a grain of truth in all of them i am a big supporter of the latter Mm -hmm. because my my thing is mermaids Uh uh-huh all around the world we have you know, South American tales, Asian tales, African tales, European tales, um, Australian tales, where all these ancient civilizations no way could have ever come in contact with each other, Mm -hmm. have stories and similar drawings of things such as mermaids, dragons, uh, like Bigfoot-type creatures. They exist in every continent uh-huh. all over the world long before we could ever have come in contact with each right. other. Right. So it's not like, oh, I heard it. For, I heard this legend from these people over here. Right. It's like, no, we came up with it on our own. It's very and interesting. It is. And same goes for vampires in yeah. my mind. Yeah. There, there might be some grain of, of truth, something that... Uh, inspired each of these. Exactly. But now, let me introduce you to the OG vampire (laughs) um, of Lilith. Do you know her? I mean, not personally. I only think of her as Niles' wife from Frasier. (laughs) 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 That's the first Lilith that comes to mind, but there's another. There's one who predated. Predates. Niles. Niles from Frasier. 
So the story of Lilith is frequently thought as being a great significance since it places the vampire's creation at the same time as humankind's creation by God in the Garden of Eden. Ooh, okay. In ancient times, when rabbis were compiling the stories that would eventually form the Old Testament, they came across a conundrum. The Bible first states that God created man and woman on the sixth day, and the rabbis felt that this meant God created the two sexes simultaneously. After all, it specifically says that on the sixth day, God created all the beasts and man and woman. Yet the Bible then goes on to say that man was alone in his tending of the earth and its creatures, so God made him a companion. Hmm. That would have been on the seventh day. So this implies that God made man on the sixth day and sometime later created woman. The rabbis found themselves with a contradiction in the holy text and thus concluded that Eve, who was supposedly made from Adam's rib, was not the first woman. The rabbis pored over various pagan legends from the nearby ancient cultures and were startled to discover Lilithu, or Lilith. In pagan texts, which pre-existed Christian texts, mm-hmm. um, there was Lilith and was Adam's first wife and the first true woman. Oh, wow. So it's like even uh, from the very start, uh, companionship and relationships were complicated. Yes, they were. <laughs> so Lilith was a strong-willed and fiercely independent, and when the time came for Adam and Lilith to consummate their marriage in the sexual act, Lilith rebelled. She claimed that she was as equal to Adam and refused to lay on her back beneath him. Oh, wow. So this is like feminist Mm -hmm. to the nth degree. Yes, she was the first feminist (laughs) and first vampire. (laughs) Lilith called out the sacred and secret name of God, which was strictly forbidden and was promptly exiled from the Garden of Eden. In most stories, Lilith is said to be barren and her breasts produce not milk but blood. But there are a few different versions. In some... Lilith was raped by Adam and gives birth to Eve. There are also versions of the story in which Lilith is the serpent that seduces Eve and convinces her to eat the forbidden fruit. Wow, these are some wild theories. Mm -hmm. Like, this is, I mean, granted, I love all of these possibilities from a storytelling point of view. Uh Uh-huh. Either way, from a modern perspective, when the Bible says that Eve was created of Adam's rib, it could be indicating that Eve was the biological offspring of Lilith and Adam. This supports the belief that Lilith could be Eve's mother. Whoa. I mean, not far off. I mean, does it really make more sense that it's like you literally took a physical rib and turned it into a person? Right. That... That also seems pretty, maybe, metaphorical. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh, yes. This idea is rather controversial, not only because of the inferred incest of Adam and Eve's relationship, but also because it contradicts the long-held belief in the original sin, 
wherein Eve is weak and is tempted by the serpent to eat the forbidden fruit, and then encourages Adam to do the same. Oh my gosh, are you telling me that the patriarchy has been wrong the whole time? Maybe. Possibly. (laughs) Because if the stories of Lilith are true, then that would mean that the original sin belongs to Adam, who committed adultery against Lilith. Oh, how interesting. And how interesting that that might have been just left out. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So the legend goes that after Lilith's banishment from the Garden of Eden... She took on a mission of vengeance against Adam and Eve and all of their descendants. She became the seducer of virtuous and the cause of infant death. All of the duties of womanhood and wifehood, Lilith rebelled against with a demonic glee, and as such, her body took on the form of a succubus, a hideous winged demon that fed off the life forces of others, the first vampire. Wow. Okay. I, I, this origin story is, it's got everything. Mm-hmm. Her offspring were the first members of the vampire race. So needless to say, the rabbis who wrote and compiled the biblical anthology were all men. They projected their sexual insecurities, anxieties, and lusts onto Lilith and vilified her. They made her into the embodiment of female power, aiding in women aspiring to be equals or even greater to men, which I'm all about. (laughs) If this would have been kept in the Bible, I have a feeling feminism would have came about much, much (laughs) sooner. Yeah, you'd think. The rabbis had inadvertently created the first feminist icon. It's for this reason that the story of Lilith was eventually removed from the Bible as we know it, and as a result, the original sin belongs to Eve. Lilith's roots go even deeper yet, for she is but one of many mythological women who helped to shape the earliest image of vampires. Generally, in ancient times, vampires were almost always women, as we learned in my brief overview. Mm -hmm. Um, because women represent both birth and death, creation and destruction, and the correlation between women and vampires was assumed. All right. Which, ladies out there, I am not supporting this. I am not saying this is what I believe. I'm saying this is what people who created the myths of vampires were thinking at the time. Right, or, yeah, what came as a result of... You know, this game of telephone, basically. Uh Uh-huh, it was. Lore about Lilith mentions that she preys upon babies, housewives, and pregnant women. She was known as being the source of sudden infant death syndrome, with claims that she would come at night and steal the soul of sleeping infants. Over the years, contemporary theories have been drawn on further connections between Lilith and other ancient goddesses. But one thing that they all have in common is that they were all about female empowerment in a patriarchal world. So in the ancient world, the vampire myth, like all myths, was an attempt to grasp and understand how the world functioned. Such as your theory when we were Mm -hmm. talking about the Adzi in Africa. 
The people of the time did not possess the knowledge of modern science, so they would tell stories to explain away the mysteries that they encountered. The early vampire myths served as a patriarchal purpose. That they were, they were a way of trying to comprehend the concept of death and make sense of natural processes like decomposition. Early vampire stories also provided them with an explanation for the mysterious yet frequent deaths of infants and children during a time when young mortality rate was high. Yeah, it makes sense that it's like that something that would is such a horrible tragedy and you have no other way of explaining it like you've got to have somewhere to direct your your pain and your anger it's and having something like a vampire to aim all of that all of those feelings toward probably makes you feel a lot better that it's like it's not something that i did it's because some outside force took my child away from me. There was nothing I could have done. Exactly. During the early centuries of Christian era, pagan followers still outnumbered those of the Judo-Christian faiths, but pagan ideologies were slowly on the decline. Yet while the old beliefs began to fall into obscurity, some myths and superstitions were repopularized. It became apparent to the founding fathers of the church that the majority of pagans and atheists were unlikely to leave their godless ways and convert to Christianity. You gotta have some good holidays. You gotta give them those good days off. You are so clever. <laughs> because one way in which Christian leaders went about gaining followers was to create days that would be sacred to the Christians, such as holy days or holidays. Yes. Oh, it literally is just, you put the two words together, you smear them, and, and then you've got holidays. Yeah. <laughs> Another much more sinister way that they recruited followers was to uh, demonize and vilify all other religions and cultures as being satanic. Ooh, I, I feel like that's, that's still going on today. I think you're onto something. Yeah. Um, and of course, this led to countless wars and battles all in the name of religion oh my gosh the think of of how much more intact the world would be had it not been for all the religious wars that have been fought over the centuries right i mean religion is supposed to be all about love yeah i mean but yeah ideally kill each other for it makes sense however during this war of religions the Christian church was reinforcing their religion by exposing their belief in demons, devils, and other supernatural beings, including vampires. In the History of English Affairs by William Parvis, um, it is explained how the church went to great lengths to destroy any vampire and how seriously they took the rumors of vampiric activity. Typically, to make things easy, the church stated that a vampire could be destroyed by impaling them through the heart with a wooden object, then cut off their head and burn the heart into ashes. This is how vampires were to be dealt with throughout most of Europe, but especially in Eastern Europe. 
Sometimes the ashes of vampire's heart were used to make a concoction that was meant to have curative properties for those afflicted with certain illnesses. Which doesn't make any sense of all. Like, if this is the a part of something that is supposedly evil, like, I don't want that at anywhere near my body. I don't care if you think it cures scurvy or whatever. <laughs> I, I don't I don't think that's uh, uh that makes sense that you know powdered vampire heart would be a curative thing. If anything, wouldn't when you be worried it would turn you into a vampire? Yeah, it's interesting that you chose scurvy because like scurvy you bleed from your gums. Oh, and it was literally the for some reason <laughs> that was the first thing that came to my mind. <laughs> Old timey disease. Mm-hmm. I just think it's sailors and pirates. <laughs> yes. Other ways to kill or injure a vampire included dousing it with holy water, forcing it to eat a communion wafer. <laughs> like, can you just imagine, like, forcing yeah. a vampire? Exposing it to the sun or by tricking it into crossing the threshold of a church or temple. Vampires were also vulnerable to garlic, which was supposedly used as a repellent, but in actuality... Um, it was just used to cover up the foul stench of corpses. Interesting. But they justified that by saying, if we surround this corpse with garlic, <laughs> it won't become a vampire. <laughs> It'll just smell like it belongs in a stew or something. Uh-huh. Farther to the west, in England, France, and the Mediterranean, the vampires were less powerful and less prolific. However, that would change dramatically in the 14th century as the Black Plague swept across Europe, leaving behind a seemingly endless trail of corpses. So as we briefly mentioned, vampires were credited to like spread of disease mm-hmm. and death, um, and that just like ramped up when the Black Death, as we know as the Bubonic Plague, yes. swept across Europe. Which I listened to um, a several part, I, th- I can't remember if it was a three or five part series on the Black Plague. It was so good. It was so fascinating. Um, they did it on last podcast on the left. And so I feel like I know a little bit about the Black Plague from that. And it is... It's brutal. It is. It's so brutal. I mean, people were dying in the most horrific way possible. And once the plague, like, got into your town, the the survivability rate was usually, like, pretty flip of a coin. Like, there were some places where, like, half of the city's population died or... There were, like, small villages that were completely wiped yeah, out. Yeah, and, and there, uh, I think some of the super fast-acting uh, ones, because I think there might have been a couple strains, if I remember right. I'm, like, going off of memory here. But um, there were some places where it acted so quickly that um, you could enter uh, an inn at night, and then by morning, everyone was dead. And it's like, holy crap! And like, you were basically getting like liquefied. Uh huh. It was. It was a. It was a hard death. Mm -hmm. And a lot. And people were so afraid that once somebody in their family got sick, 
a lot of the times people were just too afraid to stay and continue to take care of them. Like, mm-hmm. and then of course, if you flee, then you take you it with take you. it with you, and then you spread it to the next town. So that's where a lot of this, the actual because. Speaking of fleeing, a lot like fleas were a big spreader of the disease. So yeah, there's some a little bit of actual actual causes there. Mm-hmm. So in 1347, all of Europe was consumed with paranoia and fears about human mortality. Death was everywhere and affected everyone. It was the plague that was on everyone's mind. Superstitions grew around the dreaded disease since no one had any knowledge of where it came from and how it was spread. As we mentioned, when entire towns were laying waste by the plague, it became clear that no single person could be held responsible for the devastating disease. It wasn't long before people returned to outdated ideas and beliefs in an effort to explain the disease. If indeed the devil was to blame, then it seemed like demons were the carriers of the Black Plague. And since blood mixture was not a thing that happened back then, how is it that, say, your blood, Chris, which is infected with the Black Plague, mixes with my clean blood, which then gives me the Black Plague? How could that be? I guess we're going down together. We are. Like, we started this podcast together. We are going out together. <laughs> um, so since we are not commingling in the sheets, and there's no such thing as a blood transfusion, uh-huh. and we don't know things about, like, fleas and mosquitoes. Right. We don't know any of that. It must be. Can you guess? Uh, I mean, it must be a vampire. You are so smart. (laughs) I would have been top of my class in the 1300s. Yeah, so (laughs) the vampire myth rumor that was, like I mentioned, in like France and the Mediterranean, it wasn't that popular. They weren't so scared. All of a sudden, they were like shook to fear of vampires because... How else do you explain this disease spreading? Right. So basically the idea was like that these vampires were acting like hypodermic needles and just transferring blood from person to person to person. But in reality, it was happening on a much tinier scale. Mm-hmm. Um, so aside from vampires themselves, the people also began to blame black rats Um because it was decided that the black rat was responsible for the cycle of infection um, because in Europe the rat was already somewhat uh, seen as like a harbinger of bad luck. Mm-hmm. Well, and- I mean, obviously if your your home is infested with rats, that's a pretty <laughs> bad day. Right. And they were also seen as a familiar. Oh, like a, like a witchy type uh-huh. thing. So... People who practice witchcraft have a familiar, somebody that's an owl, a rat, a snake, a rabbit, cat. Cats are, are probably the coolest one. Mm-hmm. And you know who witches might be friends with? <laughs> Vampires. <laughs> yeah. 
Or the witch may be a vampire themselves. Ooh. So you got... So many possibilities. You got this mysterious disease spreading from town to town. Um, you got rats, which are, are associated with, like, dark and mysterious mm-hmm. uh, members of society, which just ties back to vampires. And I feel like, the, I mean, this is probably a time when uh, tr- there's a lot of trade happening. Uh, or like that that this is probably the start of when uh, trade is really ramping up and you're you're finally being able to get stuff from far away uh, and uh, and with trade you get new people from new places right. so it's like oh who is this like it could be any stranger in the town mm-hmm. because now you're seeing people are kind of migrating between different countries and continents and something that they weren't necessarily able to do but with that also brings new diseases exactly from all over the place exactly so as the plague was associated with witches and vampires um it was carried from village to village and so too was the supernatural expression however you and I and our listeners now know it was not vampires. It was not witches. It was not even the rats. The rats were the carriers Mm -hmm. of a much smaller friend, the flea. Yes. That spread the black death. So during this time, there were certain signs that people looked for to prove that someone was a vampire. For the living, they would become superstitious, superstitious of anyone. (laughs) Do you mean superstitious? Or suspicious. I did mean suspicious. Okay, okay. (laughs) They were suspicious. Okay. Of anyone who avoided daylight, lived in seclusion, and acted outside of the quote-unquote behavioral norm. People afflicted with certain diseases were believed to be vampires. One such disease was porphyria. Porphyria causes the gums to tighten around the teeth and create an illusion of longer canine teeth. And it also greatly affected skin pigmentation, which made people seem extremely pale or with a purple tint. Oh, so just people who don't tan, I guess, are automatically... Yeah, so sorry anyone that lives in Sweden. (laughs) You're a bunch of vampires. (laughs) Well, also, like, I am pretty much about as white as, as, like, look at how pale I am. I'm showing Patrick the underside of my, uh, of my forearm, and when I put it up, up next to his, uh, we're about 50 shades (laughs) apart. Yeah, you're like the color of my white carpet. But I know. If I if I'm the color I wanted of to the, hide the I... baseboards, <laughs> <laughs> the brown trim. Um, and so, in a very very um, unfortunate coincidence, is one of the earliest forms to treat this uh, porphyria was for people to eat foods rich in protein and drink blood. Oh. Now, it's not saying human blood. Yeah. But that's just a really, really unfortunate coincidence. Yeah, for so these that, that's the. I mean, who was writing the prescriptions back then? This was also back in the day where if you had, like, an earache, they would say things like, 
get a chicken, tie it to your head, fill up a bottle with human urine, like pig's blood, and dirt, take a shot of that, and then stand on your head. Like, I listen to a medical podcast (laughs) where they talk about old school, like, cures. Oh my goodness. And they literally would talk about, like, tying a, a lamb to someone's leg and letting that lamb die and then living with this dead lamb on your leg for, like, a week and that would cure your, like, sprained wrist. Like, it's insane the what hell? they did back then. I, uh, I mean, even without the, the, the modern knowledge that we have, where the hell did any of that come from? <laughs> exactly. I think in the future, I'm going to do an episode just on weird AF um, cures in I the mean, ancient world. Because definitely the could. things that I've heard on this podcast, which is called Sawbones, um, it's just wild. That's That would be very fun to hear, though. So, however... Um, the disease is most the disease that is most likely to have been mistaken for vampirism uh, is in the 18th and 19th centuries, which was pulmonary tuberculosis or TB. Okay, yeah, because uh, that I whenever I think of that, I think of Moulin Rouge. Mm-hmm. Me too. <laughs> She's coughing into the ha- handkerchief, and there's blood on it. Mm-hmm. So TB had a number of symptoms that related to vampires. One symptom was labored breathing and the coughing up of blood. Um, High-grade fevers would sit in and sometimes infect people, which would then have them hallucinate and speak nonsensically, like not even in a comparable whole language. So it's like they were speaking in tongues, kind of. Oh, fun. That's when I hadn't... Uh, a symptom I had not heard of before. Me either. People suffering from TB sometimes would sink into comas and were mistaken for being dead and were buried alive. Ooh, which there is a whole, uh, there's a whole, like, offshoot we could talk about of, Mm -hmm. like, devices to uh, make sure that you don't get buried alive. Right. And as we'll see uh, going forward, they eventually would start to... Uh, exhume bodies of people that they thought might have been vampires. Mm-hmm. And, of course, these TB, pa- uh, guess they're not patients, victims, they would wake up in their coffin, they would claw, like, the inside of their coffin. Oh, God. And they, at the same time, they'd be, like, coughing up blood all over themselves. Oh, so it would just look like a horrific scene. And, I mean, then they would just die because they would suffocate. Exactly. They weren't no Uma Thurman and Kill Bill busting out of a coffin. (laughs) Um, Which that um, guides us into the dead. So living, they look for like unusual spots, you know, certain illnesses that they thought were signs of vampires. But what do you do about the dead when you think that Lady Mabel was a vampire and the reason why people stopped dying was when she was killed? Let's dig her up. Let's see, was she a vampire? So on a corpse, they would look for um, high amounts of bloating, which we now know that that is natural. That's natural. Everybody, in life, if you, especially if there's no 
preservation, you're gonna bloat. <laughs> exactly. Um, so they would look for bloating, which they considered was a sign that the vampire had been feeding because its abdominal had gotten larger. Okay, yeah. Um, and they also looked for um, other signs that the corpse had fed. I mean, honestly, that's the first thing that has made any sense where it's like, okay, like when you eat, your belly gets full. Exactly. (laughs) Okay. This is uh, an observable thing. Yeah. And as the body fluids would rise up and escape through like the facial orifices, um, such as your nose and your mouth, the fluids are typically red or pink since they contain high amounts of blood and human tissue. Okay. That... So they are they got a full belly. They have red stains on their face. Ooh. Um, clearly, they must have been drinking blood. Other signs they looked for in a corpse were um, hair and fingernails that seemed to have continued to grow. That's one of my favorite ones that I like that I had heard right this is something that I believed up until um like a couple years ago actually that your hair and your fingernails continued to grow that's not true what happens is your skin dries out and retracts yeah which makes your fingernails look longer and your hair follicles that are like once under your skin are now out and exposed yeah so I think that's interesting yeah so uh make sure the the um Mortician gives you a a close fade because that's going to grow out. (laughs) Right. Um, But we know this now. In the 18th century, they saw it as a sign that that person was still living. I mean, like, again, not the most unreasonable conclusion to make coming from the point of, like, the medical knowledge of the time. Mm Mm-hmm. So, also during this time, when they dug up a person that they thought they were a vampire, or they were burying somebody that they suspected was a vampire, they would go into the um, act of staking the corpse, the body, in the heart, but then also physically staking it to the ground. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, that's... securing it to the earth. It's like, you are not going anywhere, buddy. Right, so that it could not climb up and wreak havoc in the night. Which um, is funny, because, like, hello, did you not realize that, like, does it look like the ground has been exactly. disturbed? Exactly, like, that's what I Where was do you thinking. think they're coming in and out of? Like, you think they're they're putting all of this dirt back exactly perfectly yeah. the way it was? Um... Another way that they prevented them from coming up and attacking the living was to break the corpse's bodies at the knees, preventing it to be able to walk. <laughs> oh, gosh. That just seems like like desecration. Uh-huh. It's, uh, yeah, that just seems like a, a funny, like, overstep of... And these poor people, their bodies were just, like, mutilated. Yeah. Well, and I, I had remembered uh, seeing, uh, it was like a, a, some, like a cemetery that had been kind of uncovered in like New England or something. And they found like there these weird things with these bodies. And the, uh, one of the things was that like, that, like their head had been removed. And then like, 
their limbs had been like placed over their chest in the in the form of a cross. Uh huh. To like as like just like a just to make sure like that you're there you go you're sealed by the cross uh-huh. and it's like your own limbs and like God could you imagine a more horrifying thing to have to do like oh you have to like chop up this body and then like and then you rebury it right it's mm. sounds like a fun day at work yeah that's a big old nope from me mm-hmm. so uh the act of exhuming bodies and hunting down dead vampires became so common that it was outlawed by empress maria Theresa of austria Oh, which doesn't she have a connection? Wasn't that the mother of Marie Marie Antoinette? Poss- yes, because Marie was Austrian. Yeah, yeah, it all circles back <laughs> to good old Marie. Um, and she outlawed it because she just she disapproved of grave um, desecration. Which good on her. Yeah, I I would have to agree. Let the dead just. Let them rest. Stay dead. The mythology of vampires would continue to evolve over the course of the next few centuries until finally it gained its place in the world of popular culture. Vampires would soon become the subject of literature and artwork, and their transformation would see them go from being horrific walking corpses that carry disease to the villains of popular novels. So vampires did not immediately jump to the silver screen. Can you imagine? Um, I, I could, actually. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> um, they began in literature. The Magia Postuma is considered one of the first true pieces of vampire literature. In the, the Magia Postuma was written by Catholic lawyer Carl Ferdinand von Schertz and was the first published in 1704. In 1725, Deacon Michael Ramft attempted to explain vampirism and the reanimation of corpses in his book De Masticacion Mortuum in Tumulus, which, sorry everyone in France if I just butchered that. <laughs> uh, within this work, Ramft theorized that people most likely to turn into vampires or suffer from mysterious diseases were those with family members that had recently died. He also thought that people who experienced troubled sleep or bizarre dreams may have inadvertently come into contact with the undead. Perhaps the most important book written on vampires around this time was The Phantom World, a treatise on vampires and revenants written by French Benedictine monk Dom Augustine Calmet. Calmet implied that he believed in the existence of vampires. However, he doubted many of the myths surrounding them. In particular, he questioned the plausibility that a vampire could dig itself out of a coffin buried six feet in the ground. Hey, there we go. There's some smart thinking. Someone had some common sense. Yeah. Where does the dirt go? Like, <laughs> if there's nowhere to put it, it's got to go somewhere. Uh-huh. He also pondered exactly what powers a vampire might really have and even went so far as to explain them in early scientific terms. So all these early works um, of literary 
form of vampires were all like explaining how they are and what they can really do. So this is all still people like vampires are real. This is what is true about them. This is what is false (laughs) about them. But for the most part, readers don't catch onto the vampire's mysterious allure until the gothic horror genre was born. The gothic horror genre was born first with Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Shelley produced a masterpiece with Frankenstein, which was later published in 1818 anonymously. Fellow author Lord Byron began a short story in competition with her about a vampire, but then gave up in frustration. <laughs> I love that it, like, basically the whole creation behind, uh, the creation story behind Frankenstein was that it was just like a bet. Uh-huh. Be like, okay, who could write the better scary story? That's exactly what it was. Yeah, and then... Mary Shelley's like, oh, I kind of dabble in writing. And then she just like, because I think there were a couple people. Like, there was. Established, there was a few. Esta- like very established writers because her husband was a very well, well-respected um, writer himself. Mm-hmm. But it's like, oh, what are you boys doing? You doing a writing competition? I guess I, I'll get in on this and then she blew everyone away uh-huh. and then it stinks that she had to publish anonymously because oh, she was a yeah, woman i know those women and thinking they can write stories right and then they're bestsellers so uh lord byron's story about a vampire that failed was eventually the inspiration for john polidori's 1819 story the vampire which in turn became the inspiration for future vampire works. The Vampire is acknowledged by many to be the first true work of gothic vampire fiction, and it is set the, and it set the tone for almost all vampire stories in the 19th century. The story is about Lord Ruthven, a vampire and nobleman who infiltrates London's high society and seduces women before feeding on them. The Vampire is also the first time in which the vampire is portrayed as a romantic male figure instead of a woman out oh, yeah. for justice <laughs> or just pure torture. Yeah. <laughs> and it's also the first time that the act of sucking blood was used as a metaphor for sexual assault, which was too controversial to discuss outright in literature at the times. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Then came the short story of Carmilla in 1872. Carmilla was quite literally a new breed of vampire. Author Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu took the pre-existing romantic vampire and brought a level of eroticism that hasn't really ever been surpassed since because it was like the first true erotic vampire Ooh. story. Okay, and this is like a new breed of vampire, so it's like a labradoodle. Yeah. The labradoodle of vampires. Exactly. It's the sexy, seductive vampire. Mm-hmm. And it gets real risque. Oh, steamier and steamier. It's because, remember, this is the 1800s, and this story... Fun- Showed ankle. <laughs> <laughs> a little more than an ankle. More than an ankle? It calf. Oh! 
But this story is about a romance between the innocent Laura and the seductive stranger Carmilla, a lesbian vampire. Ooh, that, I mean, that is very controversial for, for especially, I mean, some people would say that's controversial today still, but uh, especially back then. Uh-huh. The story is likely the most adept piece of writing in vampire literature up until that point and is noted for its eroticism. The story is also significant in that it was the main source of the inspiration for the greatest vampire novel of all, Dracula. When Bram Stoker set out to write a vampire story of his own, he had no idea what he, uh, he was going to unleash upon the world. His novel took on elements of authentic vampire lore and combined them with the trappings of gothic melodrama, and then laced it all together with a battle of good against evil. It's not known when exactly Stroker first came up with the idea of doing a vampire novel, but it is well known that he drew many of his themes from previous gothic horror novels and Victorian tales having to do with spiritual conflict. Dracula became a tale of science versus religion, immorality versus Christianity, and the English versus the foreigner. It represented many of England's current fears about foreign influence on their culture. Unsurprisingly, there are strong themes of xenophobia. There are also undertones of homoeroticism, which would have been very progressive at the time as well. Ooh, that's always fun. I mean, you think of, um, I don't know if we'll get to like Anne Rice level of uh, like interview with a vampire. Like I feel like there's, in, in that that's... movie is so gay. <laughs> it's, <laughs> and I love it. Like there's definitely like a lot of queerness uh-huh. in there. And I think that's, that probably is embedded from this point exactly. forward basically i mean honestly in like modern shows today that feature vampires there's always like homoeroticism there's always a lot of queer like characters yeah or, or like fluid characters mm-hmm. well you know when you live forever you you gotta try everything at least once you try every flavor of the day <laughs> <laughs> So, while Stroker was studying Eastern European folklore, he came across the accounts of Vlad Dracula, a 15th century ruler in what is now present-day Romania. Vlad Dracula was a notorious bloodthirsty prince who fought against the Turkish invasion of the Ottoman Empire. Vlad was known for his brutal methods of torture and disposing of his rivals. His preferred method was impalement, and according to historical documents, he may have impaled as nearly as many as 10,000 people and um, severely injured and murdered upwards of 100,000. Oh, was that all? Just a bit. <laughs> this earned him the nickname Vlad Tepes, or Hungarian for Vlad the Impaler. Originally, Stroker's main character was going to be called Count Wampier, another Eastern, Europe, Eastern European word for vampire, but the name Dracula was too tempting not to use. 
Yeah, I think he definitely picked the right title. Mm -hmm. Also, not to mention the connections between Transylvania and the Impalement were just too good to pass up. Right. It's nice when you've got that um, that history to really lean on to give it that, to really juice your story a little uh-huh. bit. And interesting, I found, was that Vlad Dracula was the son of Vlad Dracul whose name means both dragon and devil in Romanian. Oh. And as such, Dracula literally translates to the son of the devil. Oh, dang. So now we're we're getting, like, a little biblical here, too. Uh-huh. Okay. So going all the way back to Lilith. <laughs> so Stroker also came across another real-life uh, historical figure, Hungarian Countess Elizabeth Bathory. Bathory was a Hungarian noblewoman who became famous as one of the first known female serial killers. Bathory's family had a long history of mental illness, and it could be said that she was the pinnacle of madness. Oh yeah, this is the one we've talked about her... We've talked about doing her, covering her case. Elizabeth and four of her personal servants... Um, took it upon themselves to hire girls from the nearby village to serve as handmaids. Allegedly, when Elizabeth set set about viciously punishing one of the young girls, some of the blood spilled onto her skin, and Elizabeth believed that the blood had regenerative powers and had restored her youth. After this, Elizabeth and her four servants carried out a kidnapping plan and abducted, tortured, and murdered over 600 girls. Gosh, all in the name of vanity. Exactly. That is horrific. Elizabeth believed that bathing in and drinking the blood of virgin girls would preserve her youth. That's just selfish. You know what? (laughs) You can get a few laugh lines, you know? Maybe just stay out of the sun. Yeah, but then she's pale, so she must be a vampire. Oh, dang! Dracula went on to become a critical success. The book has been in print of every year since it was published. Since its publication in 1897, the novel has epitomized the gothic horror genre. Dracula would go on to become the subject of nearly 300 films. And in 1922, audience saw the first adaptation of Dracula on the silver screen in the unauthorized film Nosferatu. That makes me wonder if uh, if they had movie movie cover tie-ins back then. You mm-hmm. know, <laughs> yeah. Since 1897, barely a year has gone by that a vampire story wasn't published. The most noteworthy vampire novels in recent years include Richard Matheson's 1957 book *I Am Legend* which is about a sole survivor of a disease that turns people into bloodthirsty zombies. Oh, that's... I didn't realize that that's what... that The the plot to that. Uh-huh. That's pretty cool. Stephen King's 1975 book, Salem's Lot, about a man returning to his childhood town only to discover that vampires are living there. And Anne Rice's The Vampire Chronicles which was a romantic and tragic take on what it was like to be a vampire. 
This book was later turned into a feature film by Neil Jordan, Interview with the Vampire. Oh, yeah. So, with which stars brilliantly uh, Tom Cruise and... Christina Ricci. Matt Damon is in there too, right? Is yes. It? Yeah. Just like... Or is that Kirsten kiss. Dunst? I don't. I, I admit, I was, I was not paying attention to women. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, of course, we have the uh, notorious Buffy the Vampire first movie from the eighties. Oh in that yeah, cult classic nineties two thousands series. I'm still working my way through it for the first time, like from start to finish, and I just love it so much. I love the movie from the 80s. Yeah, I, and I haven't seen that yet, so I'll have to Please check watch that out. it. I will. Um, the not, I'm, I, I do, you know what? Do take offense to this because then there's also the Twilight series. Yes, <laughs> only because we like have to mention it. Yeah, because it's pretty popular. Um, but then my personal favorite TV series of literal all time. HBO's True Blood. Ooh, yes. I love True Blood. The list of films and TV adaptations of vampires, both past and modern, are truly countless. Scholars and scientists have pointed out time and time again that in actual realities, vampires, as in the ones that can fly around, disappear, turn into bats, yeah, burn alive when the sun hits them. <laughs> do not exist. Yet this fact seems to be almost irrelevant when one considers that whether real or imagined, vampires have terrified and fascinated people all over the world for ages. There's something inherent in the vampire myths that we as humans find to be attractive and intriguing. But to this day, many people still ask the question, did vampires ever truly exist? Maybe they did, maybe they did not but their presence and their influence are profound regardless. As vampires and ghosts, this is me, my personal opinion, okay. I believe that there are people out there that practice vampirism like in sexual fantasies with consent. So that being, two partners, they want to role play in the bedroom, maybe like as vampires, or they just want to take act of you know drawing some blood mm -hmm. as some some kink some fantasy and if both people or multiple people in that situation agree okay sure go for it there we go okay and i think that's okay but then i think those are those most likely serial killers who consume their victims in gruesome ways that were not consensual and that form of vampirism in modern day, like, I do not condone, obviously. Obviously. Yeah. And that could be a whole future episode in itself. And that is where I'll leave you with the history, a very brief history, I must say. Yeah. Because I had to cut a lot of this out because uh, I could have dished up a lot yeah. more. Um, but I just, I, I was thinking of... Halloweeny. Yeah, you know. that's a, a very perfect for the season. And so now we've had like we've talked about hauntings, we've talked about vampires. We are we are getting deep into this season and 
there's still weeks to go, which uh-huh. is very exciting. Yeah, and I was just saying to my husband last night, like, I noticed that it's getting dark earlier. And I'm like, ooh, the vampires are out longer now. <laughs> yes, we, they we, can really stretch their legs. They can. Or their wings. Spread those wings. <laughs> and if you're in Japan, you know, fly away, Mr. Head. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so here's where I got my information uh an article simply titled vampire history by mcphee's wizard shop which i found a lot of really really cool like different um whimsical it is it's a very whimsical (laughs) site where they just delve into like whimsical topics oh cool uh there is the history of vampires on (laughs) historyofthings.com there's the article the real dracula question mark uh, from HeritageDaily.com. The Bloody Truth About Vampires from NationalGeographic.com. And multiple YouTube videos on Lilith and the creation of the very first female vampire who spawned this vampire race. <laughs> so cool. Well, now I I definitely want... This has got me wanting to watch a vampire movie. I I was thinking of one that, you, that what we didn't mention earlier um, that I was a big fan of for years, uh, From Dusk Till Dawn. Uh-huh. That's a really good one. Uh, I think that is super great if you want, like, a good kind of action-y vampire movie. Yeah. Um, can we just, like, recommend some vampire Le- films right now? Why not? Yeah. Because um, she was taken from this world way too soon, but Aaliyah starred mm-hmm. as uh, the Queen of the Damned. Oh, dang. You're right. I forgot about that one. I love that movie. And Aaliyah, that's what it's called. Yeah. Everyone is called The Queen of the Damned, uh, starring Aaliyah. Cool. Okay. Um, another one of my favorites would have to be um, 30 Days of Night. It's about vampires in Alaska. Ooh. Where... Oh, of course, because it's, cause when it's deep in the middle of winter there it's dark, it's dark for, almost all the time well it is there's literally 30 days of darkness in alaska Ugh, and i could not do that it's about this town in alaska that you know when these 30 days of night come it's like a vampire's playground yeah um, there's no escaping it with daylight uh-huh it's very, very cool. Ooh, so those very, are my recommendations. Nice. Um, I was thinking of some, like, the very, very classic, like, the Bella Lugosi era mm, okay. of, of film. In fact, the the last, like, the, I think one of the last movies that he did, which is, like, uh, a really great, um, cheesy, cheesy movie, uh, Plan 9 from Outer Space, which involves... Uh, like reanimating the dead and there's like a very like vampire like character in there it's it's so bad it's a mo- it's <laughs> it's so bad that it's good sure it's, one of those yeah uh, or if you're not into watching it seriously on its own i know that there is like a like a mystery science theater 
version of it oh, where they sure. like where they're like making jokes at the the whole time. Yeah, so that that's another fun way to enjoy it. Um, but yeah, Dust Till Dawn because there's like a couple of those movies, so those are that you could have a whole afternoon devoted to that one. And I'm trying to think if there are any other ones. Yeah, and we mentioned Interview with the Vampire. Yeah. Super fun. Well, feel free to continue the conversation on our on social media if you have other vampire related um, movie or TV recommendations, or if you know about another vampire from a culture that Ooh, I did not talk yes. about. Yes, I am definitely down to learn more about this, um, and just it'd be fun to to trade recommendations. I'm sure. We are all, we've all got one in the back of our head that maybe we haven't mentioned yet. Yeah. So, yeah. So hit us up on Facebook or Instagram. Yes. At Dark and Devious Podcast or our email, which is the same thing at gmail.com. Yeah. Well, cool. Thank you so much for the, uh, the, the survey in vampire history. Well, you are welcome. Um, could have gone on more, but you know. There's only so many daylight hours before I gotta hide away. Right. (laughs) Well, thank you for listening, Chris. Thank you for listening, everyone else. Yes. And until next time. Bye. Bye.